is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You can be opening in your Bibles to Mark 11 if you want to follow along some. We're going to be going to other places in the Scripture as well. We're going to break away from the book of Isaiah. If you've been with us, we've been studying the book of Isaiah. We got through the first half, 1 through 39, and we're going to pick up again later on, chapter 40 through 66, and we'll complete the book of Isaiah, but not for a while. We're going to break away from that. And uh, so with Resurrection Sunday just a few weeks away, what I wanted to do for the next few weeks is to prepare us for that by taking us on the road to the resurrection. The linchpin event of our Christian faith, now listen carefully everyone, is the resurrection of Jesus. Everything we believe rises or falls on whether Jesus conquered death and rose from the grave. Whatever you believe about an assortment of of different issues, it's really immaterial if Jesus isn't risen. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, then really it doesn't make any difference about anything, really. I used to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was was simply epistemological. I've used that big word with you before because I want you to learn it. What it means is uh, epistemology has to do with how we know truth. And so I used to think that uh, Jesus' resurrection was just about authenticating the Bible for us so that we would know the Bible is true. Jesus rose uh, from the dead. Now today, I see the resurrection of Jesus as much more important than just simply being epistemological. Now, I do believe the resurrection of Jesus is evidentiary. I still believe it gives us evidence to believe that the Bible is true. Uh, It gives us proof that Jesus is king. But I I believe that the resurrection of Jesus is ontological as well. And uh, by by ontology, I'm talking about the very nature of our existence. And so here's what I mean by this, okay? It's not just that Jesus' resurrection proves what he said. It's really, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, it's the nature of our existence. If he is not risen from the dead, then he's still dead. And if he's still dead, that means that all of us that have died are still dead. You remember when Paul there at Athens talked about the resurrection from the dead. You remember how they made fun of him when he talked about somebody rising from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise, then he's still dead. And if he's still dead, that means that all of us are dead men walking because we're going to die and there'll be no resurrection. There'll be no hope in the future. If we don't live again, here's what Paul said. If we don't live again, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. And I might add to that, and that's it. Remember, remember at the end of the cartoons where Bugs Bunny stuck his head out and said, that's it, you know, that's, well, that's it. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, you might as well just eat, drink, be merry, live your life however you want to, because Paul says, then we die. And he means that's, that's it. So when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, we're celebrating, I mean, we're celebrating the, the linchpin, the key to our faith. We're celebrating the evidence that it gives for us to believe in Jesus, but we're also celebrating the fact that we get to ontologically live again. We get to live again. 
That's what we're celebrating in the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to take us on a road to the resurrection. And I, and I want to take us through two places, three, three places. I want us to go on this road. We're going to go to the city. And then we're going to go to the garden. And then we're going to go to the cross. And we're going to go to the cross on, uh, on Good Friday. The other times uh, this week, we're going to, we're going to go to the city of, uh, of Jerusalem and next week to the garden. The L.A. Rams beat the Cincinnati Bengals this past year in uh, the Super Bowl. And on Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, they had a victory parade down the center streets of Los Angeles. It's common for sports victors to have these parades celebrating their victory, right? Uh, but it was also common in those days for kings to have these victory marches through the city where their subjects would uh, praise them and they would accept accolades from, uh, from their constituency. A lot of times it would be when a king would be incoronated for the first time or if he won a victory over some major battle or something, he would actually bring all of his captives behind him. But they had these victory marches. So this morning, uh, Michael and I are going to co-teach this message. And uh, we're going to talk about the triumphant march of King Jesus into his beloved city, Jerusalem. A march that I, I think we're going to see in just a few moments has great, great significance. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. The path to Jerusalem had brought Jesus to Bethany. Bethany was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It was about two miles from Jerusalem. Mount of Olives was directly beside Jerusalem, rising to an elevation of 2,600 feet. And so therefore, you've seen the pictures. If you've ever looked at pictures uh, of Jerusalem and the temple, most likely they're taken from on the Mount of Olives because it looks into the city. Now, Jesus arrives at Bethany, and there he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then he retires after that, John tells us, to a little town called Ephraim with his disciples. John's gospel tells us that a few days later, six days prior to the Passover, Jesus returns to Bethany and, and there he has supper with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And it's there where Mary is going to take the vial of perfume, remember, and bust the neck of it and, and pour it out uh, on the Lord Jesus. That would most likely have been Saturday, the Jewish uh, Sabbath. This is when Judas also, remember he complains about all the money that was wasted on Jesus that day. Uh, and again, this timeline's not agreed on. All, all Christians don't agree. I'm going to give you my, how, how I think the timeline went down uh, based on John's gospel and all. So he spends that Saturday on John chapter 12, verse 9, tells us that a great crowd of, uh, of Jews from Jerusalem came out to see him and Lazarus. I want to suggest to you that they came on Sunday, the next day, because of the words of Lazarus, because of the word of Lazarus' resurrection. And in John 12, 12 says the next day, uh, Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. And that would make it on Monday, not on Sunday. We talk about Palm Sunday. I've told you this before, but I really think Palm Sunday should be Palm uh, Monday. And that would explain Silent Wednesday, <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about. If you go through the, the week of uh, the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, scholars have always wondered, why does Wednesday not have anything recorded for it? We have Tuesday stuff, we have Wednesday, I mean Thursday stuff, but nothing on Wednesday. Well, it changes all of that if we see Jesus coming into the city uh, on, on Monday. So on Monday, perhaps, 
if not Sunday, Jesus set out to Jerusalem from Bethany. And as he gets to Bethage, he stops and sends his disciples on an errand. I'm sure you're familiar with the errand, but Bethage is a small town just outside of Jerusalem, even closer to Jerusalem than Bethany would have been on the Mount of Olives. And he sends them there on an errand, and no one knows where Bethage is. No, there's no archaeological finds that tell us about this, um, where this city or town was. But it was on the way to Jerusalem. It was just outside the outskirts. And uh, this story is recorded for us in all four Gospels. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to weave all four of them together as I tell, uh, as I tell the story of Jesus' uh, road into the city of Jerusalem. So let's start, with, uh, let's start with Mark chapter 11, verse 1. I read you, and it says, When they approached Jerusalem uh, at Bethage and Bethany near, Mount of, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and uh, we'll send it back uh, here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Now here's the first point of interest, or the first notable that I want you to see about the entrance into Jerusalem that day. Jesus' entry into the city was absolutely intentional. It was on purpose. And I'm not trying to say that Jesus did any ministry that was haphazard or that I mean, he didn't have a plan. I, I have this feeling that Jesus pretty much had a plan every day. I've even suggested to you that he got his marching orders every morning from the Holy Spirit. That's, that's my take on Acts chapter 10, where it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit led him. So I, I think he got his marching orders every day. So I'm not su suggesting that, that he did anything without some sort of objective. But, but what I want you to see is the events of this day, there was a specific intent and there was an absolute definitive objective to what Jesus was trying to accomplish that morning when he rode into Jerusalem. My own thoughts are, and these are just Jimmy's thoughts, but my own thoughts are that he had prepared ahead of time what was to take place. In other words, he'd already talked, this is just my opinion, he'd already talked to the donkey's owner and told him, I'm going to need your donkey on this day and, or, or one of these days. And so he, he'd already prepared. And so if he says, anybody ask you, just tell him who needs it because I've already talked to them. This intentionality of Jesus uh, will have great significance as this day unfolds. And we'll see that in a minute. Matthew says of this event, chapter 21, verse 4, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now here's your second notable. Your second uh, thing I want you to see from this march is Jesus' entry uh, fulfilled scripture predicted concerning Messiah. This entry was a, it was a fulfillment of what God had predicted concerning the Messiah. Now here's, here's Zechariah's prediction verbatim. It comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But this is what he says verbatim. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Their Messiah King would come in riding humbly on a donkey. I don't think that necessarily means to put Jesus down in any way, but he's not coming riding on the typical white stallion that kings would come in riding on. He's going to come riding on a donkey, and indeed it is speaking to the humility of Jesus. I, I, I tell you, if there's, there's one thing that endears me to Jesus as much as anything, it has to be the humility of our God. That our God would lower himself to become like us, but then humble himself, as it says, to be a servant and then eventually to die for us. I mean, the humility of Jesus ought to motivate us to love him with all our heart, but it also ought to motivate you and me to be humble men and humble women as, as well. So here's a question for you that I want to I um, ask you, and it's just a pensive kind of question. Did Jesus get the donkey in order to fulfill what Zechariah predicted, or did Zechariah predict what Jesus was going to do? <laughs> yeah. The answer is yes, both and. I think. I have no way of knowing that, but uh, it, it's both are true, right? He fulfilled what Zechariah predicted, and Zechariah predicted what he would do. When Jesus began his trek uh, into the city, a large crowd would amass. And here's what Matthew says about that crowd. Chapter 21, verse 8. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means praise. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, praise in the highest heaven. And when he entered the city, he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Mark adds to the story. Mark tells us in chapter 11, verse 10, he says that they were also saying this as Jesus came into the city. They were saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. They were saying, this is the king. This is the messianic kingdom we've been waiting for. This is the kingdom of David. Luke had something else, 1938. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke's gospel, we learn that they're actually saying, blessed is the king. They're referencing Jesus as king. They're seeing him as king. During a census that was taken 10 years after this, 10 years later, um, there was 260,000 Passover lambs that were slaughtered. With one lamb for every 10 Jews or 10 worshipers, that would make the crowd in Jerusalem that year to have been about 2 million people. The, the crowds were massive and uh, the roads to Jerusalem were filled. When that census was ordered, it was ordered by the governor, Cestius Galus, who asked the high priest to do a census so that he could convince Rome of the importance of the city. When, uh, when the high priest did his numbers, he came out with uh, 26, uh, I mean, 2,600,000. And, uh, and Josephus says there's 2.7 million or 2,700,000 uh, people in the city that year. That's 10 years later. So let's say there's a few more than when Jesus. But the, the streets were packed with people as Jesus is making his way. And, and there's, there's kind of like this frenzy going on. This frenzy breaks out. The news of Lazarus' resurrection was spreading, and surely many were looking for Jesus. They wanted to see the guy who raised someone from the dead. And uh, so when they heard that Jesus was coming into the city, I mean, just pandemonium broke out. Now, clothing was extremely valuable in that day. It's not like it is for us. You get it at a thrift store over $1.50 or whatever. It was extremely valuable. 
In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, Gehazi, when he's betraying Elisha, he says uh, he wants three pairs of clothes, right? He wants three sets of clothes. I mean, that would have made him really wealthy to have three sets of clothes. So, but they're taking their clothes off. And the point, the point I'm making is they're taking their outer garments off and they're, they're letting the donkey walk all over them. They're throwing them down in the road so that Jesus can walk on them along with uh, palm branches. Now, here's the third notable that I want you to see. Jesus' entry into the city was well-received by the populace. Everyone, it seems, loved that Jesus was coming into the city that day, and they wanted him to be king, and they wanted to see him. Now, just a few days, some of that crowd's going to yell, crucify, right? But on this particular day, uh, everyone is, is following him. So it kind of begs the question, why? Why does this crowd get so frenzied over, over Jesus? Now, I've already talked about it somewhat. I can't answer with absolute certainty, but I'm pretty sure they're so frenzied because of the reputation of Jesus. And most specifically, they're, they're just so excited about the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Here's John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This also is why the crowd met him, because they heard what he, he had done this sign. And when the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone or the world has gone after him. There's another little tidbit in there where the Pharisees actually have a meeting to try to figure out how to how to quench this, this testimony that's going viral everywhere that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. But John tells us the reason why the crowds went sort of crazy was that everyone was testifying to the resurrection of Lazarus. And like I've hopefully already made the point, resurrection just wasn't a common day occurrence, right? And in fact, no one conquered death. And here Lazarus has been dead for four days, been dead for four days. And can I, I wrote this in my notes. This just occurred to me. Why did Jesus wait four days? You know, we've, we've all asked that question, right? He said, well, this is so that, you know, Lazarus is dead. We're going to wait four days. It's plausible to me that he waited the four days so that he might raise Lazarus up so that indeed what happened this day on his entry into Jerusalem takes place. You follow me? In other words, he waits to raise Lazarus from the dead so that the testimony would go, to use our vernacular, to use our word, would go viral, right? Would go viral in, in the community that day. So on his ride into the city, at some point, Jesus begins to weep, which brings us to the fourth notable that I want you to see in, um, in the story. And that is that Jesus' entry into the city is marred by sadness on behalf of Jesus. In Luke's, I believe it's Luke's gospel, uh, in verse 41 is it 2141? Have I told you? I didn't write it down. Forgive me. Where is the Luke? Oh, 19. So it's 19. I think it's 19. I think it's Luke's. Hopefully it is. 1941, as he approached uh, and saw the city, it says Jesus wept for it. So he's, he's in the middle of this celebrating crowd. And as he's marching into the city, he weeps. Why does Jesus weep? I mean, there's so much celebration. Why does he weep? Well, it actually tells us why he weeps. He wept for what could have been. Look at verse 42. If you knew this day, what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes? 
If you knew this day, what would bring peace? And Michael's going to say more about this in just a moment. But, but Jesus knew what could have been. He knows the future. He knows what will be. But he also he knows what could have been. Uh, again, I mean, uh, to me, this speaks to the fact that the future, though God knows it, and it's a mystery how God knows it, and yet doesn't cause it. It speaks to me to the fluidity of the future. Jesus is saying the future could have been different. And he's weeping because it could have been different if you'd only known what brings for peace. But he also weeps for another reason. He weeps for what will be. And so in verse 43, he says, For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Now, Jesus is talking about A.D. 70. If you don't know what A.D. 70 is, that's the day when God would destroy Jerusalem. He would destroy the temple. I think he would bring to an end the first covenant because of their rejection of God. He would do all of that. And Jesus is telling them, and Jesus is weeping because he knows. He knows what's coming. And indeed, uh, again, I would be just going off the cuff, so I'm not going to say it. But, but when Rome put their, their armies around Jerusalem and surrounded it, the, the, the terribleness of what happened in Jerusalem uh, the atrocities, the without food, the, the massacre at the end, it was just almost beyond, it was beyond the pale, it was beyond what we understand to be, you know, war crimes, we would call them war crimes for sure, what took place that day. The author of Hebrew under, Hebrews understood that God made a new covenant with his people. In chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then he goes on to conclude chapter 8 of, of Hebrews. He says this, By saying a new covenant he has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. And all this took place just prior to, uh, to A.D. 70. And uh, I mean, the, the writing of Hebrews took place just prior to A.D. 70. And, and so God is, God is telling them, the first covenant that I made with you as a nation is coming to an end, and I'm making a new covenant with, a, uh, tr with my true Israel with my true Israel. And who's my true Israel? My true Israel is made up of every Jew and every Gentile who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's, that's, who is, that's who God's true Israel is. And the old covenant is passing away. And Jesus weeps because he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming to them. So the people rejoiced. Jesus wept. Here's a fifth notable. Jesus entering into the city is opposed by the Jewish leadership. Not everyone rejoices at Jesus entering into the city. Here's Luke again, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. I think those are the verses that are following by the weeping. And so Jesus, Jesus sees their rejection and it brings about his weeping. Maybe I should reverse that order. But, but in this case, I want you to see that his entry into the city that day, it was, it was well received by the populace, but it was rejected by the leadership. 
the religious and political leadership of the Jews, all wrapped up and invested in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They rejected Jesus. They would oppose him here, and they would oppose him all the way to the end. Throughout the last three years of Jesus' ministry, he went around through the villages, and, and basically he would confront the Pharisees. And, uh, and again, Jesus, you know, this is the kind of stuff he said. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them uh, filled with dead bones. Uh, he called them hypocrites. I mean, he minced no words with them. And so they had a choice. We can repent and come in line with what Jesus is teaching, or we can, or we can remove him. And so that was their desire to remove him. Now, Jesus says to them, if they don't, if they don't praise me, the very stones are going to start to praise me. Now, that's poetic imagery, folks. I don't think the stones actually would cry out. Uh, it's a metaphor that everything should praise the Lord. And everything does praise the Lord. Rocks praise the Lord by being what God's made them to be, right? But they don't have voices per se. And so this is poetic imagery. And we see this, this kind of thing similar in other places of the scripture where inanimate objects are praising God. Psalm 114 verse 6, the mountains leap. Isaiah 55, 12, you will go out in joy, be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Throughout Psalm 148, here's a number of examples where created things praise the creator, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the water, the sky, the animals, and people, everything, everything praises the Lord, and everything that has breath ought to praise the Lord with their breath. So the people rejoiced, Jesus wept, the Pharisees were enraged. Here's my last point of interest, my last notable. Jesus' entry into the city was not understood by his disciples. They didn't get it. John records this for us in John 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. That day when Jesus asked them to get the donkey and to ride on it, this seems to imply that they didn't get it. They were filling orders. They were fulfilling Jesus' command. Go get the donkey. They did that. But it seems to imply they didn't know really why they were doing that. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Because in just a little bit, a lot of other people are going to understand the significance of that day. Maybe they did get it later on. But John says what they did, they didn't understand the significance of it that day. What was the significance of the road into the city that day. Why did Jesus do it? Well, Michael's going to come and share with us the significance. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. So, what was the significance of why Jesus came into the city in the way that he did? So I think there's one main reason why Jesus did all this. Jesus was offering himself to Israel as king. He was offering himself to Israel as king. And this actually is the second time that he had done this. The first time was in 1 Samuel, all the way back in the Old Testament, when the elders of Israel asked Samuel to appoint them a king. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, it says, But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have rejected you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. Up until that time, God had ruled over his people with different judges. And, and here, they asked God to give them a human to be king over them. Now you jump forward 2,000 years, and God himself, in his humanity, 
is offering himself to be king over Israel again. Now, when you look at this passage, it seems like all of Israel was ready to inaugurate him. He's coming in. He, he's, everyone's screaming and praising the Lord. And this is probably because of the Zechariah passage that uh, Pastor Jimmy uh, talked about earlier. Now, if you go back and read it, it actually continues past where Jimmy stopped. Um, and it's talking about the Messiah when he comes, the things that will happen. He says, uh, Zechariah 9, 10 through 12, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cisterns. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. When the crowds heard that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming, he just raised Lazarus from the dead, this person that has power over death. When they saw him coming, they saw victory for Israel. But instead of Jesus looking at this and being joyful, his heart was saddened because he knew that they were going to reject him. Now, I don't think that every single person that, re- that rejected him the day when they said, crucify him, crucify him, was there singing praises. I don't think every, everyone in Israel was saying, okay, just a few days later, we're just to reject him. I think it mainly was the priests and the Pharisees that rejected Jesus as king. And they led others to do the same thing. And this is actually the way that, the, uh, that Samuel talks about it. He said, like, like the elders that came up to the mountain, those were the ones that were rejecting God as king. And this is the second time that the leaders of Israel were rejecting God as king. And this is different than our Western individual mindset because uh, we see ourselves just, hey, we can make our own decisions. But they saw themselves represented by the leadership uh, in, in Israel. Peter actually points this out in Acts 2.36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. Not everyone crucified. There's people that had faith, continued on. But no, he, he said you, all of Israel, you, because your leadership that represents you has crucified Jesus. But what would have happened if instead of him being crucified by the hands of Israel, that they took him and they inaugurated him that day as king? What would have happened? I mean, of course, Jesus would still have to die later on. He would have to die for the sins of the whole world. But I I believe that Israel's fate would have been different. Um, Jesus said, For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. And so if they had put Jesus in power right then, I think that Jesus, as he said here, would, the things that he said would not come to pass. They would have recognized the time that God had visited them, and things would have been different. If they had followed Jesus, he would have brought peace to Israel. And in the future, the temple would not have been destroyed in 70 AD. The Jerusalem would not have been destroyed. God would have worked differently. But that didn't happen. Jesus said, if you knew this day 
what would bring peace when his heart was heavy. But he says that he's hidden it from their eyes. Hidden it? I mean, I don't think God just, just said, okay, I'm going to zap you, zap you, zap you, so you cannot know what's going on. I think when Jesus said, said that, he's, it's hidden because he's spoken parables. He's spoken parables to, the, to Israel. But even though he spoke parables, there are those who still believed. But going back to the main reason of all this, why Jesus came, he was offering himself as the king of Israel. But by this time, Israel had made their choice, and they had recognized Jesus as he came into the city with shouts of praise, but just a few days later, they would reject him. And because of the rejection, Jesus was beaten, he was crucified, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And when he rose, God was the one to place him on the throne. Not Israel, God was. Jesus said, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, I am lifted, when I am, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Even though Jesus was not put in power by the people, Jesus was resurrected and was given reign and power over the whole world by the Father. And that, that invitation that he gave back then to Israel is the same invitation that he gives today. He is asking us all to recognize him as king. He's asking us all to recognize him as king. Jesus' offer to be your king still stands today. His offer still stands. And with this offer, there are four ways to respond that I can see. The first one would be to say no. I am fine being my own king. And this is what the the Pharisees and this is what the priests did. They saw all the miracles that Jesus did. They were with him throughout his ministry. They heard and marveled at his teachings. But in the end, they hardened their hearts. And we can do the same thing. Being our own king feels great in the moment, but in the end, we will have no hope because we cannot save ourselves from death. Death comes to all men. Jesus is the only one who has conquered death and offers life to all of us. And that offer still stands. And I, and I pray that if your answer is no to this, making Jesus your king, I pray that you would not continue to harden your heart. I pray that you would open your heart to his love for you and his kingship over your life. So that's the first response, no. The second one would be to say maybe. And not a maybe to say, I want to get out of this, so I'm going to say maybe and walk away and not talk to you again. But maybe so that you can find out more. And all this could be new to you, and and you just aren't sure, and you just don't want to close your heart off to Jesus' offer of making him king. You just want to know more. And if this is you, I would encourage you to ask questions and read God's word. Talk to Pastor Jimmy. Talk to myself. Talk to the elders. If you're younger, talk to your parents. Talk to those that are strong in the faith. To know more about how to make Jesus your king. And the third response is yes. This is the answer that Jesus is wanting. This is the answer 
that I am wanting. And I'm not wanting this for me, but for you. Jesus wept for Israel for not following him. Jesus' heart is still the same. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant also will be. So if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is asking all of us to recognize him as king. Jesus is asking us to let go of our lives. Why do we hold on so tightly? He's asking us to let go and find purpose and life in him and in nowhere else. Now, The fourth, fourth response that you can give this question is yes. You can say yes again. Some of you here have made Jesus your king in the past and, and you had a passion for him and you wanted to know him and love him and over time, the world has distracted you from Jesus. You have felt the distance between your words and your actions in keeping Jesus as king. And you, you have let other things take that place. And today you need to say, Jesus, I'm saying yes again. But also, this could be, this is a way that we say yes to God every single day. Again and again and again. Because every day is going to bring things to distract us, to pull us away from placing him as king in our lives. So you have a decision to make. No, maybe, yes, and yes again. And I want to take some time for you to talk with Jesus. So let's bow our heads and close your eyes. Jesus, thank you so much for offering yourself as king to us. The offer has not gone away. The offer still stands today. And I want, I want you to help us to say yes to you. We might not have the strength in every moment to do it, but Lord, help us to say yes to you. Pray that you would change our hearts if we're saying no. I pray that you help us to know more from asking questions and seeking you with all our heart. If we're a maybe, Lord, but I pray that you always help us to come back to say yes to you again and again and again. And if there's anyone here right now that has been drawn away by this world, I pray that you would bring them back and help them to make you as king and Lord, the one who brings life and purpose. So I want you right now just to talk with Jesus and, and ask him where you guys are at and make a decision in this area. Jesus, as I was even praying, I just felt that you were teaching me to say yes again every single day. Help us to all say yes to you, and not with our words, but with our actions.
and that your kingdom would grow because of that. Because we've seen what you've done for us. We've not rejected you. We've said yes again with, with our words and our lives. Help us to go and to be part of your kingdom, making you Lord and King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.